You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of John. John chapter um, 8 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 8. I don't know how you come in here this morning. Um, Maybe you come in here broken. Maybe you come in here with a weight of sin that you're bearing on your shoulders, whether it's a, a sin from your past and it just feels like Satan continues to throw it in your face and you, you come in here kind of bearing the burden of that sin and that brokenness. Maybe it's sin right now. Stuff you're struggling with, wrestling with, hiding. I would say across this room, every single one of us would have some sort of skeleton in our closet that if it was exposed this morning in front of everybody, it would be devastating. What we see here in this text is, is the same thing. Like imagine your sin exposed in front of all these people. Look at verse one of this text, it says this, actually starting 753, it says they went each to their own house. Verse one, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple and all the people came to him and sat down as he taught them. So Jesus teaching, and as normally happens, he'll teach and crowds just fill the place. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So so there it is. There's that picture. Imagine we're gathered here this morning and and you hear a ruckus out in the foyer and and these doors bust open and and you're brought here into the middle, thrown into the the floor right here and and people, all of us watching you and, and your sin exposed to everybody. I pray that our church would be a place where broken people can come. I pray that our church could be a place where those who are wrecked by sin, caught in sin, trapped in sin, choosing sin, but coming to church, that this would be a place where, where they would know that they could experience God's grace. It's interesting when you uh, talk to people who are... Um, struggling with alcohol addiction, and they join an AA group. Do you know that, 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 when, that when somebody is wrestling with that kind of addiction, and they're, they're, they could be on vacation somewhere, and they're drawn to the temptation of alcohol, do you know what they do? They go, and they go, go and this old school, Yellow Pages, open up their phone and scroll. I was going to say Yellow Pages. What are those? And they, they'll scroll through their phone looking for an AA meeting in the area. They, they, they're not even from there, but they're just drawn. i got to get to that place. Wouldn't it be amazing if church had that same thing? Where you were wrecked by sin, you said, Man, I gotta get to church on Sunday morning. I gotta get around the people of God because my heart is being drawn into sin and I need to experience grace again. I need the, the healing, I need the restoration of Jesus. I pray we'd be a place like that. Now, as I started reading the text here this morning, maybe you're looking carefully and you, you see this little note there that that's before these words, or maybe you have a, a, a little star and there's a footnote here. We can't, we can't kind of skip past this. Look what it says. If, if you have an ESV, it'll have these brackets, and it says this, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Okay, like we just got in the car and all the red lights in our dash lit up, all right? So we're, we're going to have to do something about the red lights before we just start driving through this text, right? 
Like, what do you mean the earliest manuscripts don't include these? Here's what, it, here's what it's saying, that, that how, how do we get God's Word? We know that, that we don't have any copies of John's actual, literal, handwritten version of his eyewitness account of Jesus, right? We don't have any of those originals. Those we call autographs. That's what in, in textual criticism they call autographs, the originals. We don't have any original of any ancient documents. But instead, before Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1142, right? sorry, in 1442, that, that before that, everything would have been meticulously hand-copied. So all these ancient texts, hand-copied and recopied and hand-copied and recopied. Well, we know from God's Word that, that the science of textual criticism would say this. Not, not just believers, but those who are trained in ancient literature would say this. There is no other ancient book that, has, that can stand the test of textual criticism like God's Word can. The reliability of what you hold in your hands today being accurate to the original text is, is far beyond any other document you could hold. You think of Plato. We have, we have seven copies, seven handwritten copies of Plato's works. Uh, and those are written 1,200 years, the, the earliest copy we have, 1,200 years after Plato had died. And yet, yet your prof in college who says the Bible, can we trust it, would say, hey, get out Plato's works because we can trust those. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, none of those earlier than the 10th century. We have 49 of Aristotle's works. We have Homer's Iliad, the, the, next to the Bible, the one that has the most copies of manuscripts, 643 of those. And we take those works as accurate. Now, now when you come to God's Word, we have nearly 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. With 99.56 percent accuracy. The, the things that, that, that are kind of messed up when you're looking through, you go, well, we're not sure because we have so many copies. So sometimes we're not quite sure. It's like one word or a verb tense or, or like here, we have this section of Scripture. Nothing in all the 0.3% that there's some debate over the accuracy of the original. None, none of it deals with theology. None of it deals with any part of um, Scripture that messes with the gospel at all. But here we have this one, and it says this isn't in the earliest manuscripts, meaning that, that it isn't the ones who are closest to when John actually wrote, we don't have this. How do, what do we do with that? Well, Augustine, he said this. He believes this. He believes that there were early manuscripts, but because the early church so wrecked by sin, okay, that he said, I, I think they took it out in case people would read through this and think Jesus was soft on sin. That's what Augustine thought. Some think because it isn't written in John-like language, it doesn't fit the way John writes, some think that it, it may have come out of the book of Luke instead. Most scholars believe this. They say this just rings so true of Scripture and of Jesus that it, it may have been, you know, in the book of John where he says, there's so many things that Jesus did, I couldn't write them all. That this may have been one of those things that just got passed down through oral tradition so often and, and finally, like, man, we got to put this in and somebody adds it in. Here's where I land on it. I, I believe that it happened like it did. I believe that it's scriptural. Is it scripture? Here's what I love about, about the honesty of biblical scholars. They put that little thing in here. Hey, we're not sure about this one. So that you can, through prayer and study, go, is this actually God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired part of God's Word? 
And you can wrestle that down. And, and why would I preach from it this morning? Okay, listen, at Harvest, we, one of our four pillars is we are centered on the Word of God. We believe that God's Word is, is, is useful, is inerrant, is perfect for all of life and godliness. So we do everything based on what God's Word says. So what do we do with this? Like I said, I, I do believe that it's scriptural. I, I think it happened like it did. It, it, as John Piper would say, it shows a true Christ who takes the law of Moses and puts himself above the law of Moses. I'm greater than the law. I am the fulfillment of the law. And so what we're going to do, we're going to unpack it, and, and we're going to allow it to draw our hearts to where we see it pointing to other scripture that shows, yeah, this is, this is how Jesus responds. Let me, let me keep reading the whole thing, and then we're going to dig into it. So verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. And listen, if you have any more questions about this, just fire an email. Fire an email to jeremy at myharvestchurch.ca. <laughs> All right, it says this, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me pray, and we're going to dig into this text together. Heavenly Father, there is so much here that has, um, for us today, and so, God, I pray that what we know of you, Lord Jesus, would be um, um, highlighted, would be um, exposed through what we're reading here, God, as we compare it to all the parts of your word, that we would see your grace, your amazing grace, and that grace would transform us today. Lord God, for those who come in here with rocks in their hands, that your grace would cause us to drop those rocks. For those who come in here just buried beneath guilt and shame, Lord, that we would see you, see your grace, and be changed. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One way you can read Scripture that's a really helpful way to dig into Scripture and, and, and be changed by Scripture is, is you can take especially narratives like this and say, who am I in this story? And you begin to put yourself into the story. So who am I? Now, now right off the bat, you're not Jesus, okay? No one gets to choose that one, all right? None of us are Jesus in the story, right? Pretty much never are you Jesus in the story, okay? But who are you in this story? Let, let me say this. I, I think to, to get the impact of what's happening here, I would say that every single one of us needs to recognize this, that first and foremost, the reality is this, every one of us is the woman caught in adultery. That's who we are in this story. The key to understanding this text is seeing yourself there first. Seeing yourself as a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Because listen, if you don't see yourself as the woman caught in adultery, you're going to end up becoming another one of the characters in the story. 
And what, are the, what other characters do we have in this account? Well, we, we have one, one person who's actually missing from this story. Can anybody tell me who's missing? Ladies, who's missing from this story when the woman gets told, hey, we caught her in adultery? Who's missing? Right, right. Somebody gets the man. Okay, all right. All right. We'll deal with that too. All right. Right. So, so, I mean, think about it. Bicycling's a solo sport, right? Long distance running, solo sport. Adultery, not a solo sport. So, so where's this guy? So, so if we're not going to be willing to be the woman in the story who allows our sin to be exposed before our Savior, what do we become? We become like the guy, the, the missing guy in the story, and we hide our sin, we avoid our sin, we excuse our sin. And in doing so, we don't get to experience the grace of God. If we don't see ourselves like the woman, here, here's another character we could be. We become like the scribes and the Pharisees, picking up stones living in self-righteousness. This self-righteousness that says that, that I am right, I am righteous, I am good. There's this pride in us that grows. And it may not be, oh, I'm perfect, but we have this pride of, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And you miss grace. John Calvin said that, that pride is the pregnant mom of all sins. There's a danger in being that, that self-righteous, stone-holding, ready to condemn. Or, or, or maybe it's not self-righteousness. Maybe it's, it's a bitterness and a hard-heartedness where you have so much anger towards people who have sinned that you, you just grab these stones and you won't let go of them. Here's my prayer for us this morning as we contemplate what this text has to say. When we see Jesus respond to this woman, we have to understand something, that Jesus is not some sort of compromise. Like, like okay, I'm, I'm halfway. Jesus says, I'll be halfway between tender and compassionate and, 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 and full of righteousness. No, no, no. He's not strong and kind. of. He's just battling between the two. It's not, it's not grace versus justice in Jesus. The two traits don't fight in Christ. They find unity in him. He is both and all of grace and justice. In Scripture, it says this, that when Jesus comes, a prophecy in Isaiah pointing to the Messiah says that when he comes, he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not put out until he brings forth judgment to victory. He has judgment. He has victory. He comes in power and majesty. He will win over evil. But at the same time, in the meantime, before Christ comes again and evil is completely done away with, he is so tender and grace-filled that a bruised heart, a, a, a broken heart, your, your heart just held together by a thread, he won't crush that. A soul that is just flickering and, and ready to go out. His, his, he's not going to harm that. Instead, he'll heal. So here's my prayer for us this morning, that, that broken hearts would be healed this morning. That hardened hearts would be softened this morning. That bitterness could be let go of this morning, that, that sin that is hidden would be exposed, that sin that is being pursued would be repented of, that lives could be healed. 
Because you see what happens here. Jesus teaching, the scribes bust in, the Pharisees. Scribes are like the lawyers of their time. They, they knew the text of God's law perfectly. The, the Pharisees, kind of like the moral police. Okay, so the two of them coming together, coming after this woman. But really, they're not coming after the women, are, woman, are they? Unfortunately, she is one who is being abused in this, though. They're using her for their own purposes. What's verse 6 say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're doing this for this purpose of taking out Jesus as this leader, trying to prove that he's not the Messiah. And they're using this woman to do it. It's a setup. You can see it right there, right? There's, there's something fishy about this that, that, I don't know, maybe the guy who's hiding, maybe he was in on it, where, where he was told, hey, tell you what, we, we want you to, to sleep with this woman, and, and we're going to use this to go after Jesus. Don't worry, we'll let you go. Something's not right about this. But what they say is true. They, they bring her forward and say she's been caught in adultery and, and God's law says she needs to be punished. In fact, God's law in, in, in both Numbers and, sorry, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus say that adultery is punishable by stoning or by strangulation. It's a capital crime. Seems extreme, doesn't it? You start to realize what, what God was doing in the Old Testament as he's, as he's creating a people for himself. And he's saying, listen, you're going to be a different people than the nations around you. And so this is how you're going to treat each other. This is how you're going you're to treat our enemies. This is how your heart is going to pursue me. And so he sets up this law and saying, this is the way I want you to live. And Jesus isn't lowering the bar on that here. Another reason that God had the law was not just to create a people unto himself, but also to show us who he is. God's saying, I am holy. This is who I am. And in my holiness, I do not excuse sin. So, so sin would be treated with the severity that it deserves to be treated with because God is holy. And what God's law does for us then is it proves to us, it shows us, it's not some ladder we're using to try to climb up to heaven. Oh, if I just follow all the rules, I'll make it there because we see how impossible that would be. Instead, God's law becomes this brick wall we run into and say, I can't do this. I need a Savior. And here Jesus, not lowering that bar at all. Sin is still sin. What she's done is wrong. He doesn't excuse her sin at all. In fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus takes the sin of adultery, sex outside of marriage, sex that's reserved. God said, I give you this gift of sex, and here's what it's for. It's for two committed, a man and a woman together for a lifetime. Why? Because it makes them one. It's not supposed to be spread out to other people because it, it's, there's something deeper going on with sex than just the physical act. It's becoming one with each other to, to solidify this commitment you have. So sex outside of marriage is never appropriate. Here's the other reason. It's this picture of God's commitment to us. Christ is called the bride of the church. So, so when we mess around with sex, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're just putting this picture of God's covenant with us and just ruining the whole thing. So he goes, this is important, he says. Jesus says, this is important. He ups the game in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, not just adultery, not just the physical act. Jesus says, if you think in your mind and lust after someone with your heart, he goes, you've already committed that sin. And that makes it harder, doesn't it? He's not lowering the bar at all. He's saying, in fact, if, if you're going after this stuff, if your eye is causing you to sin, like, get rid of it. If, you, if your hand is causing you to pursue this, get rid of it. If your iPhone is causing you to, then get rid of it, right? 
He doesn't say that one. I added that one. There's so much destruction that's caused in this kind of sin, whether it be pornography or adultery. It's destroying hearts and lives, but not just that, like this woman, it's just heaping shame on us. And they have her dead to rights. She's been caught. And they're testing Jesus with this. Why are they testing Jesus? Here, here's what I think. They're saying, okay, Jesus, you're talking about all this grace and come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Here's somebody who is thirsty, and they went after sin. What are you going to do with her? And if Jesus says she needs to be stoned because that's what the law says, there's your Messiah, everybody. You struggling? This is the Messiah you want to come to? But, but he, he's kind of trapped because if he just says, don't worry about it, we, we don't have to follow that law anymore. They'll say, well, look at this. This is your Messiah, the one who, who doesn't hold God's law to a high standard. He can't be from God. I'm trying to trick him. Could also be a political trick. Because in, in this time, Jews were not allowed to execute capital punishment without the permission of the Romans. And you see this when Jesus, when the religious leaders are trying to have Jesus crucified, what do they have to do first? Take him to the Roman leader, Pilate, and get his permission to do it. And so they're almost saying this, hey, will you execute this woman because you hold God's law as high, or will you not because you're afraid of the Romans? Who do you follow? The government or God? Trying to trap him. Look how Jesus responds. Look at verse 6. They said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I don't know about you, but aren't you, like, just so curious what he wrote? I wonder, like, what did he, what did he write down? Like, like, maybe he just started writing the Ten Commandments because it says in the Old Testament, that's where you see this finger of God. You see that God actually wrote with the finger of God, wrote the Ten Commandments. Was he writing the Ten Commandments? Kind of like, this is God. I am he. Maybe he was writing down just a couple of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. Like, did these guys really see this woman in the act? Because what the law said in the Old Testament was you couldn't just see them coming out of the hotel room together. You couldn't just assume that they were having sex together outside of marriage. You had to actually see it happen. In fact, in Old Testament history says they rarely executed somebody for this because of the strict rules of how you had to catch them in the act. And maybe Jesus is saying, did you really see it? Bear false witness? What about lust? You guys watching that? I don't know what he wrote. Maybe, maybe he was writing down women's names. And some of these Pharisees are like, Ugh, because I'm having an affair with that one. And they're like, I don't think, nobody knows what he wrote down. Here's what I do find interesting, though. I, I, I can picture that in the moment they bring this woman to Jesus, I, my guess is throwing her to the ground, uh, her trying to hide, cover her face, cover, like is she just wrapped in a sheet? I don't know. And Jesus, instead of standing over her in judgment, gets right down on her level. I mean, Philippians 2 says that, doesn't it? That, that for those who are in Christ, that for all of us, what, what Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But, but he steps out of heaven. He takes on the, the form of a human. He becomes a man. And even more than that, a servant. Even more than that, he serves to the point obedient to death on the cross. So that no matter what you've done, no, no matter what condemnation you have heaped on yourself or others have placed on you, Jesus, through his death 
and resurrection, he puts himself down on our level. Scripture says he who was, had no sin was made sin on our behalf. I just picture Jesus stooping down. And imagine yourself as that woman in that moment. Everybody else huddled around, and Jesus stoops right down to your level. I don't know what he was writing in the sand. But it says this, look, it goes on, verse 7, and they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, now, that word stood up, uh, another word for that is he straightened up. Picture this as you're, you're maybe you've got a, a, someone you know, and, and if you keep bugging, 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 you know when the bugging finally gets to an end, because they're like, I just wonder if Jesus kneeled down and they keep, are you going to do it? Are you going to stone her? Look at her. Look at her. She's worthless. She's filthy. And did he just finally stand up? And now with authority says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what's he saying there? Is he, is he saying this, that only perfect people can ever point out sin? Well, that'd be hard. Hard to follow the rest of Scripture if that's true. Again, though, if you see yourself as the woman in this story, how do you then approach those who are in sin? See, Matthew 18 says this, that when you go to somebody who is caught in sin, what do you first do? You take the log out of your own eye before you start looking for the speck in their eye. What's it saying? Jesus saying this, that, hey, when you understand how much you've been forgiven, when you understand your own sin and the grace that's been poured out on you, you don't come with a rock in your hand any longer. How could we ever be self-righteous if we understand God's grace? When we truly know our sin and the grace of God, how could we ever come with a stone to say, that's it, I'm coming after you? No, we don't go after each other when we see sin in each other's lives to take each other out. We come to, Galatians says, restore each other gently. The purpose is not to throw rocks. The purpose is to rescue. The purpose is to point people to Jesus where there's redemption and salvation and forgiveness and restoration. Listen, we don't excuse sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, don't worry about it. But we approach those in sin differently than the Pharisees, do we not? Maybe this morning for you, maybe this, this text is, is for you as you hold tightly to a rock and you're like, no, I'm taking that person out. No, I will not forgive that person. No, they need to know what they've done. No, they need to be held accountable for their sin. And, and maybe, maybe for you it's a time to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm really understanding who I am in this story, how could I ever be the one to throw a stone? Look at verse 8. It goes on. It says, once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Isn't it interesting that it, he, he says that, he keeps writing, and it's the oldest of those standing there who are the first to go. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know, may, maybe as a young person you still have that sense of pride, that, that no, we're right, I know what's righteous. Then you get older, and listen, the older you get, the more you sin, right? It just keeps building up. I'm not saying you sin more frequently, but you recognize sin more as you get older and older, and you recognize what God's grace is. God's grace is this, that when you sin, you're not struck down dead. That's the grace of God. And I wonder if it's the older there who are 
more aware of their hearts. If you're holding a rock right now, like, do you think if, if you are in this crowd right here with your rock, do you think the rock you're holding right now for that person, whoever that, that woman in front of you is, whatever that person is, and you're holding that rock, do you think you would still have the rock in your hand after Jesus said these things? Listen, walk away. Drop the stone. We all need God's grace. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. I love that, right? The the start of this woman's transformation. I I would say that's a a real simple statement of salvation. No one, Lord. She recognizes who Jesus is. She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. He says, no no one's condemned you? That word con, the word condemnation, the word condemn there, in the, in the Greek, it's a building term. It, it, it means not fit for use, right? Like, like somebody inspects the building, they look at the foundation, they look at the roof, and they put the little label on there, condemned. I mean, that, that's Satan's language over our lives. Satan's language is condemnation. I mean, he speaks it over us. He, he whispers it in our ears. Do you, do you hear that? Do you ever get, get that where, you, where you, just, you hear that voice of condemnation? Listen, that's, not, that's not God. God will convict. God will draw your heart to righteousness, to the gospel. But it's Satan who speaks words of condemnation. It's Satan who says, who do you think you are? You, you call yourself a Christian and that's what you're doing? I mean, why, why should we drop stones? We don't want to partner with the accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan does. He condemns. He accuses. And Jesus steps in and sees that condemn sign over your life. And when you put your trust in him, when you say, Lord, you're, you're the Lord of my life, you're the Savior that I need, Jesus rips off the condemn sign. It says in 1 Corinthians, I love it, where it talks about that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not a workout kind of phrase, all right? It's not like, so build your muscles up because you're the temple. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying this, Jesus saying, when I put my spirit in you, you aren't condemned anymore. You're a temple. The condemnation is gone. Now, how is that possible? How how could we go from being condemned in our sin to to Jesus saying, no, you are now set free. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 talks about that very thing. He talks about all the sin he wrestles with. He's struggling with all this sin, and he gets to this end of Romans 7. He goes, who will rescue me? Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? How can I ever be declared not condemned? And then he says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8.1 starts off, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 goes on, who is to condemn? He says, God himself. Think of what's going on here. Who actually could have thrown stones at this woman and killed her? Who would have been righteous in doing so? He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus could have picked up a stone and killed her and been right to do it. But instead, the one who could condemn took our condemnation on himself. That when Jesus died on the cross, he took the stones, thrown at him. He rises again in victory. He's now interceding for us, Romans 8 says. Interceding for us. What does that mean? It means he's our defense lawyer before a righteous judge standing in our place. He's our advocate. 
So that in this little courtroom that the Pharisees set up, Jesus becomes the defense lawyer. And, and listen, listen, as you stand before a holy God, every one of us in this room is guilty as charged. There will come a day just like this woman where everybody else will be gone and it's you and Jesus. But listen, in that courtroom, if you know Christ, if you're a Christian, Jesus stands as your advocate. This is huge. This is huge. Because when you feel that sting of condemnation on days, and for some of you, it's an ongoing battle with shame and doubt and fear. And there's these moments where your mind is invaded with that voice in the courtroom that says you're worthless, you're dirty, you're unlovable, you're unloved. And, and we try to fight it ourselves, but, but in that courtroom, like all the evidence is stacked against us. It's true. We are sinners. And in that moment, Jesus sees all that mess of your life and he stands up and says, I'll stand in for you. I have a case that is bulletproof. And it's not that you're not a sinner. That would be an awful defense because it's not true. Well, Jesus says, I'm not begging for mercy. I'm asking for justice. And he says, I've satisfied the law. I've paid the price. See the cross. See my blood spilled. See my life given, and you walk out of the courtroom not worrying if more evidence might be found or if the judge might change his mind. You're set free. And, and listen, there's also the struggle we can often have. Yeah, I, can, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. You don't have the right. You can't say to the judge when he says you're free, no, actually I'm going to go to prison. You, you can't. You don't have access to those keys. You, you don't have the right to do that. Listen, you are set free in Christ. The only one who can condemn you actually died for you, was raised for you, is at the right hand of God interceding for you, far from condemning. Amen. And what do we do with our sin, though? What do we do with, yeah, but you can't just let it go. Listen, when you understand grace, grace fuels your righteousness. If you're still messing with sin, you don't get grace. John Newton, you know the story of John Newton. He wrote the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. His life story was that he was a captain of a slave ship. And when you hear what he did on that slave ship, not only was he abusing men and women, bringing them into slavery, but he was raping women on the boat. A horrible, horrible man. Meets Christ. Experiences grace. Writes the song, Amazing Grace. We still sing it today, hundreds of years later. Why? Because it's so powerful, this idea of God's grace. And here's what he said at the end of his life, as he was nearing death, he said this. He says, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's grace. And when, when you have an understanding of grace, your life changes, your behavior changes. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go on now and sin no more. When you meet grace, sin is no longer what you want to pursue. When your affections are engaged, something changes. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Um, when, I, when I first met Libby, if you knew me back in those times, I was a stereotypical wilderness guide dirtbag. Like I just, I was. I just, hair, meh right? Clothes, I didn't care, whatever, right? I just wear the same fleece every day. It didn't matter. And, and, and um, I've said this before. My girls once asked me, Dad, did you have dreadlocks when you were younger? I said, not on purpose. <laughs> if you saw where I lived, you would, you would see that in my, the place that I lived at, like I, I would consider the floor a very low shelf, 
right? That's where stuff can go, right? And yet, listen, listen, as I fell in love with Libby, and she would come visit, when she would come up, my apartment looked a lot different, right? I would clean it up. I looked a lot different. I discovered a brush, right? My clothes were clean. I smelled nice. Things changed. Why? Not because I had this, I have to do this for Libby to love me. No, because I had a new love. That's how it works. Our hearts are changed by the love of God, and everything changes. I I don't know what God's calling you to this morning. You have to understand something, that when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, he didn't stop there. That would be grace that is just a wasted grace. That's cheap grace. He didn't stop there. But he also didn't just say to her, hey, go and sin no more. That's an impossible standard for us to live under. He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The order's important. He didn't say, go and sin no more so I won't condemn you. It started with grace, and that grace changes us. So let me ask you this morning, as the worst team comes up, as we end off this morning, are, who are you in this story? Maybe you come in here with sin that's hidden. And you think nobody knows about it. Listen, no sin is ever hidden sin. Your sin is, is impacting your heart, your family, and those around you. If you're messing with sin, there's, there's effects of it happening right now. And rather than being caught under the weight and the burden and the shame and the guilt and the destructiveness of that sin, that this morning be the morning you say, I'm going to expose this to my Savior. I want Jesus to see this because I know he can heal me. Maybe for you this morning, you come in this morning with a hand full of rocks. And that today would be the day you begin to drop those stones. Today would be the day where grace changes your heart to a place where, like, I don't want to throw rocks anymore. Where you understand the gospel to a place where forgiveness flows freely. Maybe you come in here this morning as the woman. And your heart is weighed heavy by sin. You're not trying to hide it. You're just weighed under it. What do you do with that? Listen, it's not about trying harder. It's about rejoicing. It's about celebrating. It's about embracing. It's about living under the truth of the gospel. Rejoicing in this truth that Jesus Christ has fully taken care of all of your needs today. All those things you're looking for by going after sin, Jesus, I've I've given you that. So rescue happens as you move your hearts to something greater, something weightier, something more beautiful. Where you say, like Paul does in Romans 7, thanks be to God that I've been rescued in Christ. And you rehearse the gospel. You allow the gospel to have a greater weight in your life, a greater beauty in your life, and your heart rests in that. And you say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this text this morning. Thank you for the truth that you are the one who brings hope and healing. Lord God, I pray this morning, I don't know the hearts of everybody here, but you do. Lord, you know those who are so tightly holding on to a rock of bitterness, of hard-heartedness, of anger. God, I pray this morning that they would see grace again. 
they would experience the joy of dropping the rock, of trusting in you, Lord Jesus, of saying, God, I know you can deal with this. I'm leaving it in your hands because you're the ultimate righteous judge. Father, for those who are hiding in sin, I pray that this morning be a morning where they say, I'm done with this. I know it doesn't lead to life. I want life, and life comes as I bring my sin to the cross, and Satan's going to do everything he can. We know that. He's going to accuse and, and try to get us to stop coming to the cross of the sin by, by using shame and guilt. But God, I pray that your spirit would break through the noise of those lies from the pit of hell. And we bring our sin to you the one who brings healing and hope, the one who forgives, the one who has absorbed justice so we can be saved. God, I pray for those who are here who are carrying the burden of shame from a sinful past, from things they've done, and they just Satan just brings the regret up over and over and over again. God, I pray, I pray this morning that they would be free. for whatever sin we have, whatever struggle we have, that we know your cross is greater. And Lord Jesus, we would be able to sing with, with all of joy we can have because we've come face to face with grace and grace has changed us. No longer dead in sin. No longer lost in shame. No longer buried under the sorrow of our brokenness, but instead, through you, Lord Jesus, raised up to new life. God, may that be the song of our heart as we sing even now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?